This afternoon, we're going to practice the fourth of the Brahmaviharas in Pali. It's called Upeka. And in English, it gets translated as equanimity, which of all the English translations, equanimity is actually pretty good for this one Brahmavihara. And like all the others, it has a particular tone. So loving kindness is a basic friendliness, universal friendliness. Compassion is when that friendliness touches pain and there's a caring uh, quality to be resonant with someone or somebody or yourself when you're in pain. Mudita is where the heart lifts and celebrates and delights in somebody else's happiness or well-being. And equanimity is a heart tone that loves with a full understanding of what is real, of what is true. And all four of these Brahma-viharas play um, an integral role with each other. Actually, it's like a um, four-part a cappella group. Um, One may lead and the others do backup, or all four might harmonize very close to the same time So you actually need them all nearby. And if one of them begins to block the other one or feel antithetical to the other one, chances are it's gone out of its uh, truest, purest form. So equanimity is a uh, connecting of our heart to the full range of what is true. And the full range of what is true includes the full spectrum of what is painful and very difficult to what is uh, common and to what is incredibly beautiful and what's to be celebrated. And you look at that whole picture and you say, this is how it is. It is like this. With the other three, some of the the bend in the other three is that they have the per, the preferences towards the good and towards the pleasant. And there's a sorrow recognition in what's painful. And there's a delight in what's uplifting. So that's still true. That's still uh, recognition that pain is hard to bear. And good fortune does feel great. And it is to be recognized and celebrated. But built in there, what's hard to keep them uh, perfectly straight is that there's so much preference for health. There's so much preference for things to be um, pleasant and healthy and positive. And the heart so quickly goes into pain or grief around what's difficult. Equanimity draws its strength from softening preferences because you'd rather see the real picture than love a fantasy. You'd rather actually know the truth of something so your love lands actually with what's happening versus always being drawn a little bit into the enchanted version of what might be possible. So you'll notice if you ever see family portraits, especially of the last 20, 30 years, it's always when people are smiling And every now and then they'll take a picture of a child when they're crying, but you tend not to take a lot of pictures when your children are crying. They tend to feel offended when you're trying to capture that moment. But there's this false sort of uh, social media expression that our lives are all amazing. It's beautiful poetry and incredible meals and incredible vacations. And so we have this drift towards the fantasy that our life could one day be all beautiful and be all pleasant and be all healthy. And it's a nice aspiration, it's a nice ideal to see how far could we go in that direction to promote health and well-being. And yet that sets us up to feel heartbroken or sorrowful or grieving whenever difficulties arise. And in some ways that makes common sense that when difficulties arise, you should go into a type of grief or forlornness. Equanimity is a heart tone that comes in and said, I think this is how it actually is. 
And we can always try to improve things, but I can, with my sober heart, look at what actual conscious experience is like, and it seems to be a whole bunch of changing conditions way beyond our control, and some of those experiences will be painful. What if we don't call that wrong, but we recognize that's how it is? Now the near eminent enemy of equanimity is apathy. And so when equanimity is not very strong, it kind of tastes like this is how it is. And you'll notice that there's, there's a lack of caring and there's sort of a resignation. This is how it is, it is like this. There is birth and there is death. That heart is sort of um, shrinking and finding stability in being kind of heavy-hearted and resigned to the way things are. Equanimity still cares, but it wants to see the truth. It wants to understand how things actually are. So the love lands in real places, not always being enchanted into idealistic hopes. So when I was learning these four Brahma Viharas, I was working in a homeless shelter at the time, and the first three made a lot of sense to be to celebrate days when the homeless kids were having success and were feeling good, to really open up to whole levels of compassion for how hard it had been in their families for so long that they'd ended up homeless. And a general kind of benevolence towards all beings uh, who were coming and going from the shelter. And equanimity seemed a bit wrong because it seemed like as I was beginning to know as a young person, it didn't care enough. And it would just sort of, it felt like this is how it is. It's like, well, do we just give up if this is how it is? And then as I began to practice more and work in the shelter, I would find that sometimes having these preferences that things be different always introduced so much burnout, exhaustion. And then I started to be able to find Uh, developed equanimity. So sometimes it would be incredibly chaotic and I would feel the pain and I would go to equanimity and say, this moment actually is like this. I'm actually seeing it clearly. This moment is like this and what could I do? So I still cared, but I could actually for a moment not need it to be different so that I could actually see it more clearly. So taking a moment of equanimity is really helpful to get the clearest picture of what's actually happening. And then that might be the way you engage with compassion, or you might engage with friendliness or celebration. Or you might watch it and say, actually, I think it has to be like this. So my sister had five kids, and I was there uh, when my youngest niece was born. And she had a type of loving equanimity towards her fifth child that she didn't have with her first. There was a lot more anxiety about getting it right. But by the time uh, her fifth child came, not all crying was a bad thing. Newborns cried. And it actually showed that they were alive and they were having a newborn experience. And so after four kids, when my sister had her fifth kid, she knew this type of crying is just embodiment. This type of crying is not being in the womb. This is what kids do when they're born. They have to come into their bodies and breathe. It's stressful, but it's going to be okay. So this type of unpleasantness is actually not something I need to intervene upon. I'm just going to hold my child with a lot of faith and understanding. So not all pain needs to be uh, solved. Sometimes you realize that pain is a little bit apart or a lot of how things grow and progress. It's like if you're in New England and you get a winter and it's really heavy, you know it actually kills off some of the diseases for the next year's crops. So not all winters are a bad thing. You can hold it in equanimity that this is part of a larger cycle. So equanimity actually needs more wisdom for it to stay heart connected and not go into reactivity. So you want to stay caring, but for a moment, suspend your preferences and be and offer the world or another being or yourself uh, a heart connection for a moment that doesn't need things to be different. 
because you actually want to have an honest connection to how things actually are. And then there's plenty of room to then come in with compassion or celebration. But for a moment, you say, I'm not going to need things to be different and I'm not going to evaluate things from where I wish things were down to where they are. I'm actually going to get rid of all those measurements and please just let me know how things actually are. So the phrases that we use that are more accessible for people uh, in this North American culture. We'll just experiment a little bit, and over time you can develop it. But saying these two phrases, this is how it is, it is like this. And then you connect your heart to some place where that's easy to say. And then you open up a little further and see if you can say, this is how it is, it is like this. And keep your heart connected to a place where there's usually more reactivity. And you see if you can bring equanimity, a moment of equanimity to say, this is how it is, it is like this. And you'll notice that there are certain topics where the heart begins to really be reactive and panicked and really hoping for one thing and afraid of another. But with that, it's hard to stay connected to the truth of how things are. So staying connected to the truth of climate change staying uh, connected to the political situation that's happening nationally and internationally and how much anxiety people feel. Staying heart connected to the fact that no matter how much you loved loved ones, they will eventually pass away. Maybe you are experiencing some cycle of that right now. There's plenty of reason to have compassion for where the heart gets reactive. But for a moment, suspend that and just say, it is like this. This is how it is. And you can add right now if that helps you. But this is how it is. It is like this. And it's not meant to encourage um, apathy or a distancing or a blank check to reality, like whatever, this is how it is. You actually want it to improve intimacy. This is how it is. It is like this. So with that as a lead-in, find a posture that allows your body to be at ease. And you might be able to settle into your body posture. And you might suspend preferences of how you wished your body was. Only feeling bliss, not feeling any pain and say, body, tell me the truth. How is it? And so you're opening your heart to how your body feels honestly right now. And see if you can say with a caring tone This is how it is. It is like this. For a moment, I don't need it to be different. I want to love what is true. And during the sitting, see if you can see how preferences sometimes help and preferences sometimes block you from connecting to what's true. We all prefer pleasure. But is that what's actually happening in your body? Try repeating those phrases to support this warm intention. This is how it is. 
It is like this. Can you see that momentarily softening your preferences allows intimacy with how your body actually is, the field of sensations, its temperature, its health or not. And if you want to be more specific, you can say, this is how my body is. It is like this. Now, as an experiment, I would like you to consider the natural world around us, the trees and the grasses, the wind in the sky and all the animals, the insects, the mice and the rabbits, the snakes and the coyotes, hundreds of millions of years of beings being born and living and dying and other generations being born, living and dying. What if we for a moment didn't find any of that wrong but opened our hearts to this is how it is It is like this. Some trees are old and beginning to pass back to the earth. Some trees are young, spreading their roots, starting to grow tall. Some trees are midlife. Some 
some trees are still seeds that haven't hatched. This is how it is. It is like this. And we come to the animal world and see if you can practice equanimity knowing there are predator and prey relationships. We want the coyotes and the snakes and the cougars to be healthy, and yet they eat other animals. Can our hearts open to this is how it is? An ecosystem works like this. If we want to truly love the natural world, we have to be able to love it as it actually is. Like all the other practices, you can always go back to something that's in the range your heart can attune to so that you can find the tone of equanimity that's warm and balanced, able to see the truth. And then sometimes we stretch into areas where there's more reactivity. But if we breathe in connection to this place, our heart can stay warm even as it sees the truth.
I recommend now we experiment with imagining somebody here in this room. And again, somebody we haven't formed preferences for or against them. After trying out a few people, see if you can center in on one person maybe sitting near you. That's someone you can imagine with your eyes closed. This person has felt countless joys and pains in the many decades they've been alive. They felt all the joys and fears of being a toddler, of growing up, having friends, being teased, being courageous. This is how it is to be human. It is like this. At some point, this person became aware that family members had passed away. Maybe great-grandparents or grandparents. Or maybe they lost somebody closer to their age. A cousin, a sibling. Everybody in this room is aware of a family member who has passed away. We could approach this truth with compassion Or for a moment we can say, this is how it is. It is like this. Maybe there's nothing wrong with this picture for a moment. It's just the truth. This is how it is. As this person grew, they also discovered their own passions and curiosities, became curious about healing their heart or strengthening it or awakening it. So this person had courage to come on a nine day silent retreat. This is also how it is. This is also a part of the truth.
And so starting with the natural world and then bringing it towards someone where you don't have a lot of fixed attachments, fixed preferences, I invite you to turn your heart towards anyone in your own life, maybe the people who have been easy for you to connect to. And see if you can get several pictures of them to spread out a sense of what's been true for them. What are their joys and sorrows? And see if you can open your heart towards all that they have experienced. With a caring heart, willing to look at the truth, say, this is how it's been. It's been like this. And then if you feel like a last stretch, you might let your heart go up to a more global level and see where your heart is very concerned about human nature, power and politics, trends of violence or ignorance or greed. or your concerns for the natural world, the global climate. And for a moment, suspend how you wish things were so that for a moment you can bring your heart to understand this is how it actually is right now. It actually is like this.
Then I would bring it back to where we started, guide your attention back to the felt sense of your body. Sitting here as a field of changing sensations. And see if you can suspend your preferences so that you can bring intimacy directly in contact with how your body is. This is how it is. It is like this. That was an introduction to equanimity, and especially the equanimity Brahma-vihara. Two challenging parts to equanimity is one, as your heart becomes more intimate, it feels a lot more. And so the heart can go into yearnings for how it would rather things be. So sometimes equanimity your heart comes in contact and you do get a rush of preferences, a rush of wishing things were different. And you might need to go into compassion practice or some other realm of heart to really meet what's happening. Another is that if your heart does begin to find some balance in helping it be less reactive, sometimes the energy begins to droop a little bit and people get a little spacey with it. If you keep saying this is how it is, it is like this, your mind can go a little bit into a, uh, a calm dissociation which feels like equanimity but it's starting to become disassociation where you're calming yourself down so much that uh, you lose intimate contact with what you're caring about. Are there any questions about this particular Brahma-vihara heart practice? Can you go there? Um. <clears throat> just hold it close. Um, the uh, last two things you said just before we started the sit, one had to do with may I love truth, and you had... There were two sentences after these two. Do you remember what they were? Not really. <laughs> may I love things as they are. May I learn to love the truth. That's all. On the phrase sheet, there are some suggestions. So it might be part of that. Things were like this as equanimity towards the past. Things are like this. The future will be what it will be. Que sera. <laughs> Or uh, may I warmly hold what is true? So, uh, sorry.
Sorry, I can't recover the actual phrase. Um, so in Vipassana, Vipassana practice, you, they talk a lot about like using my mindfulness to become aware of like clinging and aversion and then gradually like kind of learning to, I guess, let go of that. But is, is this like the same reactivity of the heart that you're talking about here as far as the clinging and aversion that's talked about there? It is. And it's the same reactivity. The Brahma Viharas rather than being mindful of every single level where you could go just body sensations or being mindful of what it's like to move your body or being mindful of what's happening in the room, the Brahmaviharas is a, is a bandwidth that's relational. So you're bringing mindfulness into the realm, into the relational realm, and seeing what type of reactivity or fear or blockness is there. So equanimity could be used generally to support mindfulness of, say, body sensations. But it may not actively, the, the, the quality of equanimity can be an attitude that's just very balanced and accepting. But when you do it as a Brahma-vihara, it means that it's an active, caring state. And so this is to bring equanimity, but still keep it relational. And that's what keeps it from becoming apathy is that it's in a realm of caring, but you're trying to be very careful to notice your platforms of reactivity. Of course I would be upset here. It's like, well, if you're upset there, that is a good part of your heart if you're uh, upset towards pain or injustice. But that reactivity also brings with it an agitation that may not be sustainable or may, may bring in it its own um, conditioning. And so to have equanimity as one of the four Brahma-viharas in that uh, four-part acapella group that's trained for years together to be harmonized, equanimity is helpful because uh, if we go in with too much of our own preferences of how reality should be, then we get mirrored back. We've already filtered how things should be. And sometimes our intimacy can't find its way to connect to real people because we were living too much right next to how we wish they were. So my, uh, my father is aging and he just crossed over to where um, he's not walking very well. And I have a lot of natural compassion for him and for our family. Uh, but that compassion sometimes doesn't actually let me love him as he is today. I'm grieving who he was and I'm seeing him th only through the lens of, oh, this is sad that it's like this. But then I come in through equanimity because I've worked on it and it's taken some work. I can also say, this, what, this is what happens to human bodies and nothing's actually wrong with this picture through this lens. And so I can actually connect to him today and have compassion, but I don't have this uh, set response that this is only a misfortune. Because if I remember when his parents were, when he was my age and his parents were his age, they also went through an aging process. And that always puts aging and death in the negative category. And if you walk out into these, uh, these trees back here, these trees couldn't have grown if previous trees hadn't turned the soil into organic matter. And that's why there are these trees, is because there were previous trees. And so if I'm okay with life and death in the natural world, then I might borrow from that and come in one lens, is that this is natural. And I notice a whole bunch of my conventional thoughts calm down as I say, oh, it's natural that these whiskers are getting gray. If they weren't getting gray, that would be abnatural, that would be unnatural. It's natural that my parents' generation is getting older. This is actually how things work. If you only stay with equanimity, it becomes a little aloof and it becomes misattuned. So that's why you need four Brahma-viharas. Only equanimity would be an odd place to only have that be your relational channel. But without equanimity, 
you always are casting pain as a negative thing, pain as a misfortune, aging and dying as a loss of a preferred healthy being, which is always a setup for struggling and not finding peace. So the other three Brahma Viharas without equanimity get caught up in the preferences for happiness, joy, and health. And equanimity without the other four Brahma Viharas would probably feel uh, strangely attuned and aloof. But at times, especially where we have our strongest preferences, to relax them for a moment to make sure you're actually seeing clearly what's happening before it gets filtered by preferences. And then you see, do my preferences help here? Or do they actually cause agitation, cause distortion? And so I have equanimity towards my dad, and then I do care that he's struggling. But it's not only what he's doing, it's not only his story, and not all of his struggles are a misfortune. I wanna help him with a natural process that's also aging. I think uh, there was another hand over here earlier. Can we say these phrases as, um, can we substitute them with acceptance? May I accept X, Y, and Z? Yeah, exactly. And may I accept this? what you want, it, it's, it's really good to find the phrases that match your heart, because then they feel more um, organic. But may I accept this, if you only repeated that, you might come into an acceptance, but these particular Brahmaviharas have a, a relational caring in them. So acceptance um, can have caring, and acceptance may not have caring. And so you just want to be careful, even the phrases we used earlier, this is how it is, this is like that, may not also uh, evoke a type of caring. And I just want to be careful, especially with equanimity, that it not slide into um, a type of indifference that finds its calm by taking a step back so that, and no, no matter what phrase you said with equanimity, that's always how one way equanimity shifts without us noticing it is that, you know, you still want to end up caring. Yeah, that's actually helpful. Acceptance has a caring tone to me Good. more so than the other phrases, but I was wondering Great. if it's different than what yeah. equanimity is, but that's why I use it because it does have a naturally more caring tone. Great. And then I've also noticed with the equanimity phrase, it has the most variation. And the way that uh, in the Buddhist time people got into equanimity is they reflected upon the lawful nature of karma. And that was a cultural reference point that people had. And when they reflected upon karma, it's sort of like, okay, this is countless conditions all coming together to ripen into this moment. I can rest for a moment knowing this is the play of karma. But that's not necessarily where a lot of people in North America can use that as a reference point. And so each one of us would find, how do you find your way into cooling off your reactivity and still caring? And if may accept this, or this is how it is, or maybe at peace with this truth, um, finding your way in uh, is, Good for all the Brahma Viharas, but if that is how you find your way in, that's great. Yeah, we'll go here. One more, maybe two more. Um, uh, I've noticed that you've used the word moment quite a bit um, talking about this. Uh, are you implying that the, you know, this equanimity is something that you kind of check in on and then move? I mean, I get you know, maybe it becomes the lead for a moment and then drops back into the background again, lets the other, the other ones take their shot. Um, rather than, you know, trying to stay actively equanimous all the time. 
So um, we are basically practicing loving kindness and then we're exploring other topics in the afternoon. Loving kindness is a really good basic Brahma Vihar to be in because uh, unless you're surrounded by a, a lot of people constantly in pain, the default setting is sort of like I'm benevolently connecting to life around me. And then more situationally, compassion arises. But if you make a formal practice out of it, then you would say, okay, I'm actually going to train in this. And here we're showing options. And so equanimity is not something that we're now going to train in and go on the ups and downs and really figure out, unless it's something you wanted to do as a more formal training. So the default uh, practice here is basic loving kindness practice. And that ripens into all of them. But you can see in some situations, loving kindness isn't the right tone to meet a certain experience. And so if you think about something joyful, loving kindness doesn't seem to really match the joy of the celebration. And then it makes sense in that time to do mudita practice. So you're walking back and forth and suddenly you're so happy that uh, one of your family members graduated from school and you're really rushed by it. And you try the phrase, may you be happy, may you be safe. It's like, God, it just doesn't match this joy I'm feeling for their well-being. And that's actually your feeling, mudita. So equanimity is something worth training in so you have it at the ready for when that situation comes. And I found that equanimity was a better safety net than compassion because my compassion would often get overwhelmed by feeling I would suddenly understand how much suffering there was in the world and the wave would go way over my capacity to stay consciously compassionate. So I would go into grief or despair. So I put the net of equanimity behind my net of compassion and whenever I can't hold something with compassion, I fall back into equanimity. And I'm able to do that because I actually practiced with it, built a relationship to the phrases, began to go into it and find what was dissociation, what was apathy, what's healthy caring in a balanced, wise perspective. And I say momentarily because, uh, again, loving kindness tends to be more useful uh, more universally. And equanimity tends to be more of a lead factor under certain conditions. You could practice with so much momentum that it becomes a lens you can see all things through. So then you could practice it, but you really need all four Brahma Viharas to make a healthy system. And I found the other three are a little bit more relating to context and loving kindness is a bit more of my sort of steady channel to rest in. And then I know the others, but they tend to map, map onto more specific conditions when I need the stability of equanimity or I need to work through pain with compassion or I really want to celebrate uh, with mudita. Was that helpful? Okay, good. <laughs> Somewhere in that bucket of words, you can reconnect the, the simplest pith of it and find something useful. And maybe one more up here. Uh, maybe you just uh, spoke to this, but um, do you have any thoughts on um, um, threading the difference between overcompassion and difference in equanimity? when dealing with a relationship where the person is self-harming through substance use or addiction? Yeah, <clears throat> so um, my, uh, my sister's second daughter um, what, uh, got into heroin, heroin addiction. And I found that if I wasn't, I tried to stay as wise and balanced as possible, but it was so overwhelming for my care for her well-being, but then watching my whole family go into a, a reaction, despair, exhaustion, alarm around uh, her. And we all got swept up in it. And so it was sort of like, um, 
going down a river and all of a sudden going over a waterfall and there not being a little pool down below, but just led to another waterfall, another waterfall and turbulent water. And for five years, it was just, it was so intense. And I found that I got, I would get so frustrated to kind of get my perspective back. I was like, I, I'm walking out of this room and I'm disconnecting from this because if I stay connected, I cannot remember which way is up. So that was a much more kind of sense withdraw. I'm like, I'm putting my senses here on a small thing so I can regain my perspective and I'm going back. But when I didn't get overwhelmed, one reason I didn't get overwhelmed is I was using the Brahma Viharas very actively to say, this is how it is. It actually is like this. This moment is as actually intense as it is. So you're trying to have it not be this intense. And that seemed compassionate, but actually is adding into why everybody is so triggered is everybody's trying to gain control here or somebody's being way too dissociated floaty so that they won't be overwhelmed, but that's, none of that's actually helpful. And so I would come in with compassion and find that it was just too many layers at too, too much. And so rather than having to walk out of the room before I would just like temple, it just is like this. And I would find that just as my mind was boiling over like a big pot of pasta when it's really going to cover the whole top of the stove and just my mind was like, oh my God, I cannot believe how crazy this is. I would say, it actually is like this. And with training, that just brought sanity to me. Momentarily. Oh, it actually is like this. My mom, my sister, my niece, our whole family pattern, the dysfunctions, the exhaustion. I was like, wow, and what could I do here? And I felt a calm come over me. And I wasn't one of the crazy people in the room, but I wasn't numb. And I wasn't pretending like it wasn't happening. It is actually happening. It is like this. This moment is actually exactly like this. And I found equanimity. And then once I got my feet under me with equanimity, I could actually start saying, is there something I could do here that would be compassionate? It's like, no, this particular intensity is like uh, three dogs fighting. Like, I think I have to kind of let some of this play out or I'll see if I can do something about it. I don't see something I can do about it. But I could actually actively care from a place of equanimity, just reminding myself, this moment, these moments really do look like this. It really has gotten this intense. And then I would actually see, oh, I just had a good idea, why don't we try this? And I could try a compassionate uh, coming in. So I think we really do need all four Rama Viharas for our heart to be healthy. And if one of them isn't that accessible, the other three are weak. So some people have a compassion compulsion, but they don't renew themselves with joy. And they just calm themselves down and think that's good enough. But like, if you're going to deal with that much suffering, you really do have to celebrate. You have to actively celebrate what's beautiful so that you can handle what's difficult. If you're in big swings of celebration and grief, it's, chances are you, but you don't know much about equanimity, letting the world turn on its own axis and realize it's not your responsibility. All four of them become healthy. And so if there's compassion fatigue or if there's an overcaring, that speaks to a heart that cannot hold the same context with equanimity. And so that's a, that's a piece to develop. Or you might check, when was the last time I infused myself with beauty and joy? So a lot of care providers slowly wind down because they don't give themselves as much access to beauty and restoration as they do daily contact with where they're suffering. Not sure if that bucket of words, uh, again, like a little word puzzle, you can report it out later and readjust <laughs> it and find your own answer in that word bucket. So if this was uh, useful and you want to keep practicing it or if it comes back later or something to reflect upon, uh, you have these four Brahma Viharas. Forgiveness is its own kind of compassion. So it's 
in there in the realm of the Brahma Viharas, but these are all active ways of cleaning out the tangles and kinks and uh, old bruises in the heart. So use the one that makes sense from this point into your walking. May you have an afternoon. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.